everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm Molly Herford, outdoor adventurer, writer, podcaster, etc. And I'm Peter Glassford. I'm a registered kinesiologist and an endurance coach. So, what have we been up to this week? Uh, well, we're in Canada, so uh, the snow and rain of the quote-unquote shoulder season, which is something you say when you live in a quote-unquote mountain town. A lot of quotes. Yeah, there's a lot of quote-unquote uh, things going on, um, but it is the shoulder season, so between golf and and skiing here in the mountain town of Collingwood. Or downhill mountain biking and skiing on the ski hill. Yeah, I don't know if downhill mountain biking is that big here uh, that, that you can include it. I tell everyone it's huge, so don't ruin this for me. <laughs> I mean, they're trying. They're pushing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that it's the large moneymaker for the huge resort, but... Uh, Well, speaking of exciting things at the huge resort, one of the things we did this week was uh, some filming for a video all about uh, what's coming up next summer here in Collingwood, which is going to be Sea Otter Canada is taking place at the Blue Mountain Resort uh, next July. So all of our friends in Ontario and those that are within driving distance of Ontario should think about blocking off those dates on the calendar. It's going to be a really fun time. I'm excited about the dual slalom. I made a pitch for... Uh, Are you participating? No, I will be watching. However, I did make a pitch because it's sea otter, and traditionally there's a guy in a sea otter mascot costume walking around. A a person in a sea otter. Person, yeah. Um, Equal opportunities for the sea otter mascots. Yes, but the the beaver is more the uh, small aquatic... You can't go there. Small aquatic animal of Ontario. I'm really making a, a serious pitch for sea otter versus beaver dual slalom. Just, just putting it out there. Yeah, I'm manifesting. Yeah, there could be some good competitions there for sure. Yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting event. So Jen Jackson and I, uh, Jen had to work slightly harder than I did, but we both sort of demonstrated the uphill antics. I don't. We're we're focusing on the riding uphill at the downhill resort. Hey, it's all good. It's but all they're going to have lots of different events, and and Sea Otter always keeps the dual Solomon, which is it's sort of an outdated event. They don't really use it in anything really anymore no, but it's super fun uh it is people seem to get behind it and i think for like the sake of retroness and it is a good spectator discipline uh so they're going to do that at the bottom of one of the runs and then they're going to have some like uphill tts on and off the road some gravel races the enduro one of the canadian stops in their enduro series is coming uh, i assume there'll be some downhill racing and then lots of e-bike and, and other demos and stuff so yeah, that's that is exciting for the local community that we're having this this event that's potentially pretty big, especially if you look years down the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is it is pretty exciting, and when you talk about downhill mountain biking growing and mountain biking in the area growing, it is sort of cool. It'll be interesting to see what that initiative can do. Yeah, so between that, uh, we had some snow this weekend, so we headed out on a hike with our good friends. Yeah, I did not start at a race, and uh, I'm going to say that relates to my why. But Hey, I wasn't going to say it. Eh, I, I mean, didn't bring it it's up. It's out there. Yeah, we had Canadian National Cyclocross Championships, and I signed up on good faith to support the event. But uh, while power washing my bike on Friday before having done any laps or even left for the race, I decided that it was becoming a little ridiculous that I had barely started training for the year and was going to go put in a full weekend of washing my bike with a power washer for not a lot of output so and as your wife who'd be standing in the freezing cold pit i applaud that decision and so i think you know my clients will say i'm there's a few things that i say redundantly uh and the one thing is that we don't add races late and well i did intend most of the the season to to race nationals on your radar for sure it was sort of a late addition, and so I, I got out. I stopped loss, and I apologized to... I did pay, so, I mean, I guess I still helped the cause. Yeah, I think I think it was the wise decision. It's, you know, it's not always fun to say no to stuff, and, I mean, we could definitely do a better job at saying no before signing up for yeah, things. Yeah, we definitely have to work on the, like, rather than the late no, the, yeah. the early no. Yeah, definitely, but we're getting better. Yeah, we're putting rules in place. And I think that's a struggle for everyone, right? And I think we have another episode, the our episode on why and some of these, you know, finding goal setting episodes. But the we did one a couple episodes back on why. And that seems to have resonated with folks. So we've had some follow-up questions, which you can post your own to Molly's Twitter. 
uh, at Molly that? J Herford. Molly J Herford. Don't yeah, don't don't, don't stop tweeting at Molly Herford. Yeah, um, leave leave Molly Herford alone. And or you can use the contact form at consummateathlete.com. And if you do have sort of like a thought or a you know person you want to hear talk about why and goal setting or, or sort of related topics, that'd be great. But uh, for me, my why is you know I, I really like mountain biking. I don't really like cold weather. And uh, yeah, you just sort of have to stick to that and think about the the things you can prepare for and things that you enjoy the mm-hmm. process for, right? So. Um, yeah and before we get into today's episode just a reminder that shred girls Lindsay's joyride is finally available for pre-order on amazon um, pre-orders are super appreciated and if you pre-order and you email me um, you can find my email over at theoutdooredit.com or pretty much anywhere just find a way to contact me with your receipt i will mail you a signed postcard and a pack of shred girls stickers Uh, So that way, if you're getting it as a Christmas present, you can still give someone something for, you know, your actual Because the the actual release date is later. Exactly. Um, But it does help to have those pre-orders as far as getting the book onto any sort of lists and and so other people can find it and sort of the overall success. So that is helpful. Uh, And we'll try and make it worth your while, obviously. Uh, If you are looking for a more physical gift, the, the, the store is revamped. Mm. That is shred-girls.com. Shred-girls.com. We have some new designs, new colorways, all that fun stuff for Shred Girls swag. What type of stuff do you got on there? You got hats? I got hats. I got a a new hat, even more neutral than the last, which as everyone knows, I'm very excited about. But we also have sweet ride bikes, get rad t-shirts and phone cases. I actually really am excited about the phone case. Hmm. Yeah, a few other fun things. So check that out. This is a... Clothing empire. Yeah. How about you? Anything else you want to talk about? Um, you know, I've been really enjoying connecting with people on the phone, doing some, you know, just consulting a couple coaches, couple athletes, uh, just talking, you know, about next season, talking about some of this why stuff, you know, finding why we're doing any of this stuff, talking through different concepts around, you know, health, body composition, uh, cycling, running. Uh, excited to be working with a couple sort of multi-sport runners uh as well and then yeah a few people coming into the gym over the next couple weeks for some sort of movement assessment and uh some on bike sort of testing sort of checking that out Uh, so if anyone wants to get in on that any of that yeah they can go over to smartathlete.ca or email me peterglassford at gmail.com you can spam that if you want to um that'd be awesome yeah yeah definitely it's that busy time of year right people are starting to get excited you know we're now through our canadian cyclocross nationals the u.s most of the u.s domestic stuff's wrapping up i heard you doing your who's number one today and uh it's our ranking show over at flow bikes yeah yeah so uh oh you can't call it who's number one we don't call no it one said who's number one. number one i said who's number one we're not re-recording this. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what else. I think that's that's good. But we have a, a really cool episode today. And it, I think there may be... Uh, I think our guest is very positive and very uh, interested in, in finding whys and, and, and finding your own way in sport, right? Definitely. She's definitely made a, a, a... Can I say she's made a niche of her own? Or at least a, she's made a career for herself, no doubt. Yeah. And I remember actually one of our good friends recommended Sonia Looney as a as a guest way back when we started this consummate athlete podcast, um, because she was so impressed with her ability, with Sonia's ability to find a career and, you know, uh, inspire people, uh, through her bike riding. Right. And she's not a, a world champion, right. She's not right. You're not, you're not saying yes, that's, but that's accurate. I was yes. like, maybe she is a world champion, <laughs> but she's, you know, she's got a podcast that does quite well. Uh, she goes to all crazy events. Right. And that's sort of her specialty is these like, just seven days of hiking up a mountain in Belize or some like crazy true true hard events yeah. uh, it's really cool hearing some of her stories we get into you know we talk about her career globally and sort of what she's up to now but we also do kind of get into a few really nitty-gritty stories about some pretty brutal experiences that she's had during races and you well, because these aren't even like this isn't like Tran, it's Andes or some of these like ones that are in other countries no. that you've heard about. Like a lot of times, these are these are crazy. In some races. cases, the one race is billed as the hardest race in the, the world, and I'm trying to remember what the name of the that one is. in Mongolia. Maybe we talked about that one. Yeah, okay. And it sounds just gnarly to the extreme, and it's it's just awesome not only to do them, but like 
you know, in a lot of the cases, she's one of the first women to do a lot of these races, the first woman to finish these races, uh, the first woman to, like, solo mission these races. Um, So her story is really good, and she's got some great advice for, yeah, finding your why, finding your way in sport, figuring out what makes you happy, figuring out what's not making you happy. You know, she started out in cross-country mountain biking and really gave that a couple of years of trying really hard and, you know, was racing at an elite level and just realized that wasn't what was lighting her up and it wasn't, you know, where she wanted to ultimately be. So she shifted gears and, you know, now she travels the world speaking and racing. So should we get into it? Yeah. All right. Enjoy this episode of Sonia Looney. I'm sure you get this all the time because I get it all the time. If someone's just like, what do you do? How do you describe it in like 30 seconds? It depends on the audience, really. Like, my husband is a financial planner, so in his state of work, I say, I'm a professional mountain biker, and I own my own business. And that's kind of the two things I say. And a lot of times people think that being a pro mountain biker means you're, like, jumping off of humongous cliffs, cliffs like Red Bull Rampage or racing downhill. Mm -hmm. So what I say to them is I say, well, think of your favorite hiking trail, and I'll ride up that, and I'll ride down that, and I'll do that for, like, 100 miles. And then they (laughs) they seem to get that. Nice. And then when you're talking to someone that's more in like our outdoorsy sphere, how do you describe it these days? I say ultra endurance pro mountain biker that focuses on multi-day races around the world. I love that. Um, (laughs) Okay, so let's just start with like going way, way, way back. What year did you start riding mountain bikes? Uh, I don't remember exactly. It was either 2002 or 2003. Um, I believe it was 2003 because I I remember I turned 20 right around my first bike race. And I started mountain biking just a few weeks before I started mountain bike racing. So it was kind of all or nothing. I I found the mountain bike and then I was like, okay, I'm racing in two weeks. Let's do this. That's okay. Were you an active kid or did you just go zero to a hundred? I was active. I, I played soccer as an, an elementary and middle school. And then I played tennis all through high school. And what really gave me the confidence to start mountain biking like that was running. And my senior year of high school, this popular girl told me that she was going to run a marathon and I wanted to be a popular kid. So I thought, <laughs> sweet, like if she's doing marathon, then I'm going to do one. And it was funny because I don't actually think she actually did train for a marathon. I think she just said that to be cool. But then I actually did train for the marathon and I ran a marathon when I was 18 and then again when I was 19. And it's so important to do things like that, like big stretch goals, because it really does give you confidence to branch out. Okay. Now I'm just like wishing I went to your high school because in my high school, the popular kids would never have done a marathon. They were more inclined to like (laughs) smoke weed behind the school. (laughs) So funny. Like a man, I would have been a different person back then. (laughs) Yeah, I was, uh, you know, in the I was a band nerd, so I was I was mostly, you know, in the marching band, playing my piccolo and being crazy. <laughs> so that that's not what the cool kids did in my school either. But I'm also really thankful that I learned to play a musical instrument my whole life because, again, it's it's that empowerment of like, wow, I can actually teach myself something, I can practice at something, and I can improve at it. And I think that that teaches you that you that you can just work harder and get better at something. Whereas maybe you didn't learn an instrument, maybe you didn't play a sport and maybe you learn later in life that, yeah, like, oh, if I, if I work on something, I can actually improve. It's not a set thing. Mm-hmm. So how did you get on the mountain bike for the first time? What, what made you go from, you know, not being a mountain biker to suddenly I'm going to race mountain bikes? Yeah, I think that's a great question because a lot of times in our sport, people don't just randomly start mountain biking they usually have someone invite them. Mm-hmm. So that 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 is an important point that if you love mountain biking and you want to help other people or other women get into the sport is to invite them to go for a ride with you. Cause that's how I got in. It was actually um, some men that invited me to go, but I was, um, I was going to spin class at the gym at the time pretty regularly because I didn't know how to train for running. So I kept getting hurt all the time. So I ended up, uh, having these guys at my work, I was a student intern doing engineering and they invited me to go mountain biking. And I, I was like, I don't really know what that is, but I know what a mountain bike is. And there's some like, you know, Walmart level bike in the shed. So I'll just go get that out and I'll go with them. 
And I just, I loved it. it. They made it really fun and it was just cool to be able to go outside and cover ground so quickly. Okay, let's talk about how they made it fun because I have seen so many, I've like stopped dudes on the trail that are like out with their, you know, girlfriend or a girl that they've convinced to go out mountain biking and like the girl is somehow like two miles back crying on the side of the trail and the guy is just up like on his phone looking annoyed that she's taking so long. So what made it fun? Like what did they do specifically that made it like, oh, this is actually a good time? Well, first of all, I have one guilty moment because I've actually done that to a guy before. <laughs> yeah. Chris Cox, if you're out there, I'm sorry. Um, Amazing. Yeah, they, you know, it's really important when you invite someone to go riding with you, like no matter what level you are, that you ride together. So they didn't leave me. They rode behind me. They let me set the pace. They would, if I, if I like had a question about how to ride something, you know, they would tell me, they would be encouraging and say positive things. And yeah, they didn't try to kill me. So I think when you're taking a beginner out mountain biking, making sure that the terrain is actually beginner terrain, because it's really easy whenever you become a mountain biker, everything that's second nature to you is not second nature to a beginner. Like even mm -hmm. knowing how to shift going up a hill, like people don't know how to shift whenever they're, they're new to mountain biking. They mm -hmm. don't know what gear to be in. So being really cognizant to the beginner mindset and then also like you can learn that yourself by trying a new sport or trying something different. And that helps you go back to the beginner mindset. If you're trying to teach someone how to mountain bike and make it fun for them. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So you're out mountain biking. You love it. Why on earth do you sign up for a race? <laughs> well, personality, you know, it's definitely a personality thing. I'm competitive and I, I like, I like signing up for things. But these guys at my these guys I went with said, "Wow, like you're you're fast. You should do a race." And I was like, "Eh, I'm a runner. I don't really know how to mountain bike. I don't even know about this." And then they're like, "Well, you're just scared." And that oh always works on me. Yeah, I was like, "I'm not scared. I'll show you." So I signed up for the race, and it was really funny because people often think, "Oh, you must have been really good from the start. Like you must have been crushing it from your first race." But I, I didn't. I actually signed up for the sport category, which is like the intermediate category. And I did that because it was the New Mexico State Championship. And there was nobody in the sport category. There were, <laughs> at that time, there, there weren't many women mountain bikers. So I was like, all I have to do is finish. And then I'm the state champion. This is going to be awesome. Well, the, the, the sport category was quite a bit longer than the beginner category. So I was out there forever. And my bike barely worked. And I remember the only memory I have is that it wouldn't shift properly. And I was so frustrated with the shifting. And by the time I finished, the only person waiting for me was the, the race promoter because everyone was done and had gone home. Oh, <laughs> but you were yeah. technically state champion. So yeah, and, and, I, and I was pumped. I actually went and bought a bike. I spent my life savings and I went and bought a bike. But this is another important point about buying a bike. And that's a question that I get a lot on social media is like, how much money should I spend? Or what kind of bike should I get? Yeah. And I went, I went to a, a bike shop and I wanted to buy a cross country mountain bike for a hill climb because that was the next race. And they sold me like, this was a long time ago. It was like an enduro bike. So yeah, I think, I think making sure that you are, you have somebody that you trust to help you buy your first bike is important because the bike shop might just sell you old inventory they're trying to pawn off. Wow, that is a really good point and I never would it never would have occurred to me that a bike shop like would be trying to do something like that, but it makes so much sense, right? Like, oh, this person, you know, doesn't know what they're talking about. Of course, we're just going to kind of shift this old stock and call it good. Never. Yeah. And they probably think, well, this person doesn't even care. Like they don't know the difference. So yeah. who cares? And I love, I love the bike. I started racing cross country mountain bike racing around New Mexico, the old school, New Mexico off-road series. And I remember it was, it was my second or my third race now. And I was in Los Alamos and I just did this really fun race called the Pajarito punishment. And I was so pumped at the race finish. And I rolled up to these pro guys and I was like, that was awesome. I had so much fun. And they looked at my bike and they looked at me and they looked back to my bike and they're like, what is that? What is that bike you're riding? And then they went and picked it up. They're like, oh my God, this is so heavy. How could you have had fun? It was so heavy. And I thought my bike was cool and lightweight because the bike before that was at least 10 pounds heavier. Right. So they kind of burst, they kind of burst my bubble about how cool my bike was, but I didn't care. I was still super pumped. Yeah. It's all relative, right? <laughs> That's right. 
Um, okay, so you started racing cross country, and okay, you went from that first race to suddenly you were a really serious cross country racer for quite a while before you got into what we're going to talk about next, which is like the crazy adventure stuff. But yeah, what was your like ascension to being an elite racer? Did that happen quickly once you kind of got the hang of it, or did it take a while? Um, it did. And it was because I surrounded myself with people who were already doing that. So of course I met a boy at one of my first races who happened to be a pro mountain biker who was racing cross country all over the place. So I was really fortunate to get to spend a lot of time with him and learn about training, learn about nutrition, learn about, um, how to be a pro essentially, even though I was still a beginner. So that helped a lot. And then I also met an amazing woman. Her, her name is Nina Baum. And some of you guys listening might know her, but she was heading up the UNM cycling team and she invited me to come be on the cycling team. And she essentially mentored me as well. So having those two people in my life was really important for showing me that I could do this lifestyle because I didn't know I could do that. I thought that I had to do the cookie cutter life of like go to school, get a job, buy a house. Like mm-hmm. my entire life changed and my entire perception of what life actually could be like changed when I started mountain biking. So I started traveling around with my boyfriend racing and started racing expert at the Norba Nationals. It used to be called Norba Nationals back in the day. Oh, man, and yeah. After, <laughs> yeah, and then after two, after two years, I, I submitted all my results and I got my pro upgrade. That's awesome. Um, what were you doing when, like, when you decided to go pro? Like, what work were you doing? Had you just finished school or where were you at then? No, I was still in school. So I, my first year as a pro, I had actually moved to Boulder for grad school. Right. It was funny because I started mountain biking at 20. I raced for two years and I finished my undergrad in electrical engineering. And I was like, I don't want to go work full time and and give up on this bike dream. I want to move somewhere where... I can actually go for this. And I remember I had been to Boulder when I was 14. I had applied there for undergrad, but I got a full scholarship to UNM. So I couldn't, it was just made more sense to go to UNM, but I was traveling to Colorado almost every single weekend to race. So I applied to the PhD program and I got a fellowship. So again, school paid for and, and you know, a salary. So I was pumped. So I moved to Boulder and it was a rude awakening my first year as a pro because I was racing kind of smaller races and I did not do well. Like I was, I was expecting myself to do really well. And I was coming like last or second to last or whatever. And the perfectionist tendencies and the expectation that I need to be the best or that even people won't love me unless I'm the best was hard. And I remember I would like cry while like crying while racing my bike because I wasn't as good as I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a point when some people quit Um, because it's too hard and it's really hard to go through that emotionally. Or some people realize, okay, like, what am I going to do now? Like, how am I going to decide if I'm, if I'm lovable or I'm good or like, what does good even mean? And going to yoga really helped me with that because I, I did really think my whole life I was always an achiever and I had never really failed at something before. So going to yoga taught me that it's okay to accept where we are right now And just because we're here right now doesn't mean we're not going to get somewhere different. And even the reverse, like I would say coming back to the present future, this uh, fall, I chose to do a lot of other projects instead of training and racing. So my fitness has gone down and accepting where I am now and saying, just because I'm not as fit as I was this summer now, it's okay. Like it's okay to not be where I want to be and I can just work hard and get there. And that's what's most important is working hard to get there, not the there. It's it's not I'll be happy when. It's I'll be happy now with the things I'm working on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I just kind of wrote about that kind of for myself realizing like I don't have to be the same. At, like I'm not going to be and I don't have to be the same athlete that I was five years ago. Like and to expect that I would be the same athlete that I was five years ago is ridiculous. Like. For one thing, I'm not really yeah. riding my bike nearly enough to <laughs> consider that. But I had jumped in a, a cyclocross race a couple weeks ago, and I was very rudely awakened to the fact that I had <laughs> not been training for cyclocross at all. And but like in my head, I was like, "Oh yeah, I used like I used to race these all the time. Of course, I can just go do this, and everything's gonna be fine." And then I realized, like, "Oh right, you need to train for that to work." 
it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. Yeah, ex- expectations are, are, are an interesting thing. It's something I like to think about a lot, and it makes my brain kind of twist and turn and get stuck because without expectations, we wouldn't really strive to get better or to grow at something. Mm-hmm. But also expectations can be really hard because if we don't meet our expectations, then how do we feel? And then there's also the expectations of others. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think just like, just being aware of your relationship with expectations is, is an important place to be, but knowing that you're never going to like be completely at peace with that. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So you're doing cross country and then all of a sudden you're doing stage racing around the world and these insane ultra endurance events. What was the first one you did and why? Well, I was racing cross country and I honestly wasn't amazing at it. Like I was a mid pack pro, which is, you know, it's still good, but I wanted to get better. I wanted to be, um, a pro on a team and all those things. And I was, I was working at now at this time, I finished grad school with my master's degree and then I was working for a startup. So I was working full time. I also went back to school to take pre-med classes to go to be a PA or, or maybe medical school. Um, so I was actually thinking, you know, this mountain biking thing isn't really working out. I've been doing this for a long time. I'm not seeing much progress, but I had started a blog and the blog was fun, but I thought, Oh, like maybe I should retire. But then I met another guy, (laughs) all these guys making positive influences. And he was like, he was like, Hey, uh, I'm going to go do this like 50 mile race or or maybe it was, I can't remember the, the, Oh no, I think it was like uh, a training camp that he was going to. And I went to this training camp and they're like, we're doing a hundred mile mountain bike ride today. And I was like, what? Like a hundred, hundred miles. <laughs> and I had never ridden a hundred miles, like not even on a road bike. And it's funny because to this day, it, this is just me being stubborn about road biking, but I've still never ridden a hundred miles on a road bike. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> so we did a hundred, a hundred mile mountain bike ride as part of this training camp. And then I was like, okay, that was it was like raining. It was in St. George. It was, uh, Linda Wallenfels camp. And then I ended up going to this race, uh, called the Dakota five Oh in South Dakota, a 50 mile mountain bike race. And I loved it. It was so fun and I did well at it. And it just, it was more about racing yourself and the adventure and the course. Whereas cross country racing is of course you're racing yourself, but it's also very cutthroat racing other people. Mm-hmm. And I really, it really resonated with me to say, okay, what, what reserve can I dig into in myself? Mm-hmm. So then I, I was like, I got to do more of these. So then I signed up for my first hundred mile mountain bike race, which was, it's funny. It's like one of the hardest races in the country. It was the Breck 100. And I absolutely, I absolutely love that one too. So I thought, okay, like it's time for me to switch disciplines because this is what I love. Um, cross country racing is, 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 I love watching the world cup on Red Bull TV and all those things, but you tend to, the life of a cross country racer is you tend to go to the same events over and over and ride the same course. Mm-hmm. And the course is normally a, a lap race where you have to ride around in circles and that, and that's cool. But I really wanted to ride different trails. I wanted to spend more time on my bike exploring and, and the uh, endurance racing was just uh, the perfect, perfect place to go do that. Yeah, I know, like pretty much exactly what you mean. But for me, it was actually with running, like, kind of similar, like, you know, 5k is fun, but you're really racing everyone else. But then I got into, I did my first like ultra running race this summer. And I thought I was gonna like hate it or at best like finish it. And it's the first race I've ever finished where I was just like, grinning, like everything hurt. I was, you know, kind of miserable, but I was so happy. It was the best feeling. So something about that ultra where it's yeah you versus yourself versus and you know wherever you end up in the pack it's kind of happenstance almost but it's more about you racing yourself is pretty rad. Yeah, that feeling of just grinning from your accomplishment is one of the best things ever. Yeah. Um what's the craziest of those races that you've done at this point? Well, um Crazy can mean a few different things. So uh, yeah, I started doing stage racing in 2000 and I think I did my first stage race in 2011 with the Breck Epic and then the Brazil ride. But so I'll give you two. One of them was the Mongolia bike challenge and it sounds really cool, 
but it was so poorly organized that there were so many dangerous things that happened over the course of the race. And the best example I can give, probably the craziest story of things gone awry, was um, they didn't really mark the course in advance. So for those, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll take a step back for a second. A multi-day mountain bike race means that there's a set course every single day with a set start and finish. And you race every single day on a different course. And then whoever has the fastest cumulative time over seven to 10 days or however long the race is wins the race. So each day, this race was a, a different course in Mongolia. So the race didn't actually mark the course in advance. They would actually have a little like Soviet van in front of the pro men as the pro men were racing, trying to mark the course. <laughs> so that, that didn't go well. Um, so there are days of getting lost as well. But on this particular day, there had been tons of rain and they sent us down this, this, tra this trail road thing. And it was a crazy mud bog. So the Soviet vans actually got stuck in the mud. It was just like bogs. Like you were sinking in up to your knees in mud, trying to walk your bike down this horrible hill. And then you finally get to the bottom. You're like, finally, I get to ride. It's going to be better. And then you just, I just saw people like standing in groups. I was like, what is going on here? And they ended up canceling the stage because this river had completely flooded. And the only way back was to hike your bike back up through the bog. So we had a turnaround, like we were getting hypothermia from standing there, had a turnaround, hike our bike back up the bog. Then the race promoter had to find these like yurts in the middle of nowhere. And all of us piled in the entire race piled into three yurts. There's fires going. We were frozen. There was no food. And then we had to wait for a bunch of these vans to come pick us up. And they're like, oh, lunch is almost ready. In two hours, you'll be at the high camp and, you know, you'll be all good. Well, no, it took us over nine hours to get to the high camp. By the time we got there, it was like pitch black. It was 10 o'clock at night. Our bikes still hadn't arrived. And to make matters even crazier, there was a guy in our van who was really sick. And he was like getting out of the van and going to the bathroom and puking and, you know, the perfect thing you want uh, just oh. a few inches away from you. And, um, yeah, it was, and our van got lost and like, we couldn't speak. The guy only spoke Mongolian. So we like, couldn't speak to him. Like the phones didn't work. So yeah, long story long. Uh, it was, that was, that was probably the craziest story of where you're actually afraid for your safety. Yeah. Stage racing sounds really fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Uh, kind of related to this. What would some of your favorite like things that you bring with you to stage races be? I feel like you are probably the most dialed packer for races at this point. So what are some kind of like surprising things that are always in your bag when you go to a stage race? Yeah, that's a great question. And I actually have a spreadsheet that I use for packing yeah. and I still manage to forget things. Um, I would say, okay, almond butter comes with me on my trips because a lot of the places that you go um, around the world, they don't have nut butter. Like nut butter is definitely mm -hmm. uh, an American thing. And, um, I don't eat eggs or I don't, I don't do like the typical breakfast. I like to have my breakfast, which is toast and almond butter. So I always have almond butter with me. Um, another thing is I always have a little mini external battery because some of these races they'll, they'll charge for you. They'll charge your devices, but you can only do that at limited times of days. And I like to have, like, I have a, a Wahoo bolt and I need to make sure that's charged. I need to make sure my phone is charged. So like the little charger. Mm -hmm. And the last thing is I make sure that I have um, an eye mask and headphones, like noise canceling headphones, because people are really loud and they can be really inconsiderate in the tent villages. Cause you know, you, you forget to use your inside voice when you're, cause yep. you're outside. <laughs> so having those two things can help you sleep. Yes, absolutely. Very nice. I like that. Do you bring like a book or anything like that? Or are you so cracked from racing that doing anything post-race is just not usually a thing? I do bring a book, but I find that I don't usually end up reading it. And this is kind of something I could do a better job of is chilling out. But I just love people. I love the race village. I, I love the community. So I tend to be out and about a little bit more than I probably should talking to people. But I, I don't know. It's really fun to share that energy because with stage races, you have all these different people. Like my favorite um, size of a stage race is 500 people because you see these people every single day at mealtimes, in the race, like wandering around, especially in races where camping is man mandatory. Mm -hmm. So you really get to build these amazing relationships with people that is really different than it would be in any other social construct because your job doesn't matter 
Um, where you live doesn't matter. How old you are doesn't matter. Like none of that stuff matters. You're just there because you love adventure and you love mountain biking. So you build these really powerful relationships that really last. That mm-hmm. they, they survive the test of time. They survive distance. And because of that, I have I've made some really great friends all over the world. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have to ask, like, kind of for my own edification here. When you're at these races, I know for me when I've done stuff similar to that, I have a really hard time turning off my work mode and like just focusing on being at the race. And you have a billion other projects going on in addition to being a racer. How do you manage to, do you click off? Do you like turn off the phone, put it in airplane mode? Or do you try to balance doing a little bit while you're gone for these? Yeah, you know, I don't do a very good job of turning it off. And I've recently found some motivation to help me. And I was at the Andalusia bike race in Spain back in February and the starts were kind of late. They were like at 10 or 11 o'clock and I'd be awake. So I would get up, go to the coffee shop and work on my computer before the race would start. But that was not good because I learned later this year that mental fatigue actually contributes to a higher perception of effort. So mental fatigue makes you actually feel more tired on your bike Mm -hmm. and that comes from working. So I'm trying to, I've been trying to create a a no work rule during races, except for doing social media. And yeah, so that's something I'm working on. And I'm, 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 I recently hired an assistant that I'm going to train up to help me that way. Whenever I'm gone, if there's something that's really pressing, they can deal with it so that I can be a racer. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And the late race starts are some of the hardest things because I realized that when I was doing a bit of road racing this summer, it was all like 4 p.m. starts. I was like, that's a full work oh my day gosh. before that. Yeah, like I can't relax all day and like be a racer all day for that. I need to get like six hours of work in. And by the time it was race time, I was so checked out of being a racer. <laughs> so I need morning starts <laughs> is where I'm at. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting to talk to a World Cup racer about that because a lot of times their race starts are later. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know... Uh, apart from the world cup, there's, there's a lot of pro mountain bikers and pro cyclists in general, especially women who have to work a full-time job, mm-hmm. um, and race. So learning how to manage your energy is the hardest part because you're working. So that contributes to mental fatigue and then physical fatigue manifests from the mental fatigue. So knowing that, okay, I'm working. So therefore if I'm tired on my bike, I shouldn't keep pushing because you can burn yourself out and overtrain yourself. Even if the hours on your training log aren't high, like don't beat yourself up because you fatigue is fatigue and fatigue can come from stress. It can come from your job. It can come from managing your family and you really have to respect where your body is at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So we talked kind of in the very beginning, you were talking about being a perfectionist and, you know, coming to cross country racing and stuff like that. Stage racing and these kind of crazy adventure racings. Um, I had Hannah Ray Finchamp on talking about BC bike race, and she sort of said the same thing where she was a perfectionist, but stage racing made her realize that that was not a possibility. Um, is that something that you had to kind of come to terms with? Like, stage racing stuff is going to happen, right? It's never going to be perfect. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, that kind of intro to that started with the endurance racing because in a hundred miles, there's a lot of things that can happen both to you or to your bike or emotionally, but in a stage race, like you're not in control of the schedule. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mentioned that Mongolia thing as a worst case scenario and, 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 you know, you have to really focus on the things that you can control and try not to worry about the other, don't sweat the small stuff. Like a lot of times you're not in control of eating your perfect meal the night before the race. You're not in control of the fact that you couldn't sleep last night because it's a time zone change. You're not in control of the fact that maybe the course was marked wrong and you got lost. So spending your energy ruminating on those things or stressing out about those things makes you slower. So by, by forcing yourself into those situations, you eventually learn that, okay, like these things that maybe I obsessed over as a cross country racer isn't as big of a deal in stage racing as it might be in cross country racing because everybody's in the same boat. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And this is kind of a weird question, but you know, when you're an elite cross country racer, success is really obvious, right? It's, it's getting on the podium, it's getting in the top 10, it's winning the race. What, what does success look like for you now in terms of mountain biking? Yeah, it's really interesting because I, you know, I kind of made a niche for myself winning all the the biggest stage races around the world. So 
now that I have all those wins under my belt, which I'm so fortunate and so thankful for those, um, getting more wins doesn't really mean as much to me as it used to. And, you know, before I was trying to prove to myself and prove to other people, like, look, I'm good. I'm fast. I could, I can do this. And that focus from trying to prove myself is, I mean, it's still there on some level, of course, Mm -hmm. but now, um, the why, the reason why I do all these things is because I love being able to tell stories that can help other people find their passion or, or push themselves so that they feel like they're more fulfilled in their lives. And it's, it's been really cool kind of transitioning over to, you know, that mental space. And Mm -hmm. of course, when I'm at a race, like my business is to win the race and I want to win the race and, Success is winning the race to me in some in some cases, but success is also just the 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 little tiny habits every single day leading up to the event and doing my best, showing up for myself, being gentle if things don't go as planned, even on a work day if I'm trying to get a ride in and it doesn't happen. So success is showing up and doing my best and being proud of my effort. And there's been races where I haven't won the race and I've been super proud and I felt successful. Mm-hmm. And there's also been races where I won the race and I didn't feel successful. So really success boils down to feeling proud of your effort. I love that. Uh, and your your mantra too has kind of, I, I don't know what it used to be, but the do epic shit mantra, I freaking love. How did you come up with that? And I mean, when did that become kind of your your thing? Uh, a long time ago, um, I think a friend of mine, like I met him, he's, he's more of an acquaintance. I met a guy a long time ago. He was more in like weightlifting and a little bit of cycling. I remember he like said it or he had a sticker or something like that. And I was like, that's awesome. I'm going to adopt that for myself. And this, this was probably 10 years ago. And then I thought, well, this, this would be a great sock. And at the time, um, defeat was one of my first sponsors whenever I quit my job and I quit my team, like the first sponsor that paid me money. And I was like, this is awesome. Let, like, let's make a sock. So I said, let's make a do epic shit sock. And at first they're like, well, I don't think we can put a cuss word on a sock. I don't think people will buy it. I don't think that's allowed. And I said, well, let's just try it and see what happens. And it ended up taking off and blowing up and people just loved it. And I thought, yeah, like this is what I'm doing in my life. Like do epic shit. I want to be able to go do things that I'm proud of. I want to be able to have awesome adventures. I want to be able to push myself to the limit. Like, and, and also you don't have to be doing crazy mountain bike races to push yourself to the limit. It's just doing things just barely outside your comfort zone because doing that is what builds confidence by pushing yourself just a little bit. Um, you start learning, wow, I can do more and I can do more. And then you feel more confident in what you're able to do. And I touched on that earlier with the marathon running saying that doing that helped me get into mountain biking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you've also been kind of doing epic shit, I guess, if you will, in your life outside of racing. You also started doing a lot more public speaking in the last couple of years and and you started the Moxie and Grit Sock Company. So, I mean, let's let's first talk about the public speaking thing. What was do you remember what your first like public speaking event was? Yeah, it was actually self-created. So I worked for Ergon for five years and my job was to travel around the country, um, training bike shops, how to sell our products. So I would be traveling and I thought, well, I'm here. Maybe I can help people while I'm here. So I would create speaking sessions, just like it was supposed to be like a mentoring session type of thing at these bike shops. So people would come and I would just help them with whatever mountain bike question they had. But I started racing, endurance racing at that time too. So I started having cool photos and cool stories and it kind of started evolving. Like people wanted to learn more about the mindset of being an endurance racer, not as much about what tire pressure do I need to run or how many gels per hour should I eat? And people still want to know those things, of course, but it kind of started with that. And then I started getting invited to speak places, um, just in the bike industry. So then I thought, well, I'll just put a speaker tab on my website because I'm speaking now. Like maybe I can make this a bigger thing. And then I got invited to be a hour long keynote speaker at a tech conference in South Carolina. And that was kind of my first really big keynote speech where I got paid money. they, They paid for my travel. I spoke to an entire auditorium with hundreds and hundreds of people that even that weren't even cyclists. So it was really cool to be able to do that. And I'm not, it's funny, like public speaking, some people fear public speaking more than death. Like if you Google like top fears, Mm -hmm. but for me, I, 
I love the energy of other people and I feed off of the energy of other people. So I absolutely love speaking. See, I feel like I love it once I'm like 10 minutes in. It's really the first, like beforehand is when I'm the biggest wreck. I cannot handle it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you're speaking and now you're also starting this, you started a podcast too. So when did the podcast launch? Yeah, so the speaking thing started probably like four or five years ago and I was able to do a TED Talk and like speak at multiple conferences um, outside the bike industry. So that started growing. And I was also writing um, articles for magazines. I've been doing that for over a decade. But just just in this last year, I thought, well, gosh, I, like, I, I want to keep growing. I want to keep learning how to do new things. And I had just started listening to podcasts because I had had foot surgery and I couldn't walk for a month. So that's when I kind of started listening, um, especially because I had to do road biking to get back into cycling. And yeah. so podcasts during road biking was awesome. So I actually listened to the Rich Roll podcast and I had read his book and I thought, this is really cool. Like I know a lot of great people too. I know a lot of inspiring people and I love sharing stories. I love helping people. So I'm just going to create this and see what happens. And that was about a year and a half ago. So my podcast is about how to live a high performance life. So we talk to experts in, or I talk to experts in mindset. So psychologists, um, coaches, Uh, I talk to doctors about um, nutrition and healthy living and also inspiring stories of people who have accomplished great feats in their life, um, really cool athletes, just really cool entrepreneurs. So, you know, the things that we consume is so important. Like the things that we listen to, the things that we read, they shape our reality. So if we can just add in more positive things like podcasts or like cool blogs or like um, a healthy relationship with social media, it can make us feel a lot better and a lot more inspired in our lives. So the podcast has been awesome in that regard because of connecting with great people and being able to share that energy. Mm-hmm. Do you have any like best or like favorite lessons that you've learned from guests over the last year and a half? Yeah. Um, I would say patience is important <laughs> with yourself, with yourself, <laughs> like, the podcast is almost like my own therapy session in some ways because I reach out for things that I need help with. So I've also learned uh, a lot about burnout and about um, mental fatigue. So my, my favorite, I'd say, I don't want to play favorites, but one of my favorite guests, uh, is Brad Stolberg and he's been on the, the show twice, but he wrote this great book along with a coach named Steve Magnus called peak performance. And they are basically experts in, in burnout and teaching yourself how to rest. Mm -hmm. And I used to think that a rest day meant, okay, I'm not exercising today. Therefore I'll work 12 hours or I'll, I'll be super busy all day, but that's actually not rest. Rest is, um, doing something where you're and and Brad defined this in our last episode, just a couple weeks ago, rest is doing something where you're not needing to progress at it. So like playing with a dog, going for a walk, um, hanging out with your friends. Like you're not trying to progress or grow when you're doing those things. But a lot of other things that you're doing, you are trying to progress. And that was a super helpful definition to tell myself, okay, now I'm resting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's right now I feel like we're in a really interesting place with any of that self-development stuff where it feels like there's sort of these two schools of thought that are polar opposites, <laughs> right? Like the one is the rest and recover and like the importance of that. And then the other one is just this hustle, hustle, hustle mindset. And I find that I'm just constantly like ping-ponging between the two like any given day. Yeah. So I feel like I'm being really yeah. inefficient, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting because some people really need that motivation to hustle. Mm-hmm. Um, not everybody is is really driven. And sometimes like hustle is a habit. Work ethic is a habit. And if you've gotten out of the habit of working hard towards something, then it might feel really jarring to all of a sudden, quote, start hustling. But for people who have that innate or practiced work ethic from their whole lives, those are the people who tend to burn out because they're like, hustle, okay, I'll just work harder and work harder and work harder. And then suddenly you're working all day, every day, and you're not really enjoying your work anymore because you're pushing yourself so hard. Mm-hmm. So I think that it, 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 I don't want to use the word balance because there's times where you do need to hustle. There's times where you do need to work your tail off, but it's really important to have periods of rest following that. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, speaking of working your tail off, you also started a sock company too, <laughs> which I love. What made you decide that you wanted to do that? Yeah. So over the years, I've done lots of fun co-branded projects with my sponsors. So like the do epic shit sock with defeat was an example or creating a Jersey or last year, or maybe it was two years ago, I did a co-branded glove design with hand up gloves and those all did really well, but it wasn't just the financial reward where I was like, this is cool. It was people tagging me on their social media, wearing the go big gloves, wearing do epic shit socks, where they were doing cool things in their lives and they were excited about it and excited to share that not only with me, but with their, their people online. And I thought, dang, like this is a really cool community, like of people that love their favorite socks or their gloves or their Jersey, but they're out there doing stuff and they're, and it's giving them a little bit of extra motivation and excitement to go do those things. So Mm -hmm. I thought, well, you know, I've, I've done all, I've, I've done sales and marketing for five years for, and built another brand, um, when I worked at Ergon and I thought, well, I've done lots of co-branded stuff and I, you know, I have the confidence to believe that I can learn anything. So I thought I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna start my own company. And it's been really cool because people really do love the, like they love socks that that have a unicorn with the F word on it. They love, um, do epic shit socks. They love, I have these winter socks uh, that are coming out with like a rhino that says chubby unicorn. (laughs) Like they like being, it's just fun and it's a great way to express yourself. So yeah, that the, the community building aspect and just seeing people excited about fun products is awesome. Um, the other side too is, you know, I manage myself as an athlete. So I manage all my sponsorships and I know, you know what that's about. (laughs) Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So like that, that's, it's awesome. And it's, I've learned so much with writing proposals and negotiating and being able to tell people what your value is, but it can also be stressful to have all your eggs in that basket. So I'm trying to diversify my business in different ways so that, if one day I'm not doing the sponsorship thing anymore, there's other irons in the fire that I have that go along the lines of what my core values are of inspiring people and, and having fun and creating fun things. Mm-hmm. We have to talk about the name Moxie and Grit. I love that. How did you come up with it? And I mean, explain to everyone what that means. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I So disclaimers, I'm ter- like title, titling a blog post or titling an article or naming a brand. Like that's what I, or, or titling a podcast even like I struggle with titles. Oh, me too. And so <laughs> like, I wish that there was just someone out there that could just do that part for, for me. Cause I'm mm-hmm. not good at it. <laughs> but with uh, Moxie and Grid, I thought, okay, like what do I want to call this thing? Okay. Wh- what does this brand represent? And what do I represent? And what do I think are the important elements in life for approaching any challenge or anything. So I just started writing down all these words that I thought were were those things. And those two words kind of sifted themselves to the surface. And I was really pumped to find them. So Moxie is like energy and and perseverance and and spunk. And grit is like putting your head down and getting it done and just being super determined and tenacious. And I think that having fun and energy, but also being determined and tenacious are the the elements that we need for mental toughness, for getting through anything and just keeping those in mind and going back to those things helps you stay focused on the positive things instead of the things that might be really hard. I love that. Also, I feel like you could have gotten like two dogs and named them Moxie and Grit and it would have been (laughs) adorable. That would have been awesome. <laughs> Putting that out for like your next animal purchase or like kittens or something. Moxie and Grit would be great. Oh, that'd be so cute. <laughs> okay. In starting this, what have you, have you dealt with any major challenges or had any like really great successes or both? <laughs> oh, with Moxie and Grit? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Initially, there was uh, a lot of people that were ordering socks and it was really cool, like the dopamine response to see like, oh, people like this. This is awesome. And it's normal for businesses to kind of go through ups and downs. So it was a little bit slower for a little while, but it's picked back up again. So just saying like, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to have my my grit with my moxie. I'm going to keep this pushing and keep evolving. Um, That's been that's been a lesson. Also, uh, learning how to delegate tasks and mm. to say, finally say, 
look, like I can't do everything. I can't do it all. I need to reinvest back into my business, whatever you're doing. So that's just something I just started doing is, is, is having people help. Like I have a professional graphic designer who helps me with the designs. I pay, I pay for distribution for someone to ship my products in the U S. Um, I have an assistant who's going to come on and help me with podcasting. And there's just, as you know, there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes with podcasting. Um, learning how to just to realize that you don't have to do it all Mm -hmm. and it's okay. And also that just because you started making a little bit of money doing something that doesn't mean you're not going to make more. Like it's really important to reinvest that back into your business. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is, I mean, we're both, we're both women in the cycling industry and we've both been in it for a really long time. Have you seen it shift? Because I know when we both kind of got into it, it was a very male-dominated industry. And I feel like the tide is turning slightly, maybe? How do you feel about that? I feel like if you if you zoom out and look big picture, um, if you look back to when I started racing, like, God, how long ago was that? 14, 15 years ago? Um, yeah, I mean, it's awesome. There's way more women racing. There's way more women just out on the trail, like recreational riders. Mm-hmm. Um, it used to be that it would be crazy if there was equal payout at a race. Like that was unheard of. And now, like at least in mountain biking, it's it's normal. Like it's very rare when I go to a race when there isn't equal payout. Um, also, I would say that the vibe and the tone of racing has changed for for female racers. When I started racing cross country, it felt, and I mean, this, this might be just me and just my experience, but this was, and this was years ago, it felt kind of catty. It kind of felt like, um, I was, I felt inferior and I felt that people at the top, like I wasn't invited to be in the top, Mm -hmm. but now, um, you know, like leadership is, is set set at the top and we have so many amazing women out there across all disciplines of cycling who are inspiring and inclusive and helpful and also supportive of one another, even at the, even at the top level, like happy for your competitor. And I think that now people are realizing that competition, while it's difficult um, and it can be hard sometimes, is that competition makes us better. Like without good competition, we wouldn't be as good as we are because we wouldn't be pushed to be as good as we are. So I really think that the vibe um, in in female mountain biking period has really grown. And I, I do think that the industry, some companies have done an incredible job creating parity and creating more opportunities to highlight women. And that's a great example, too, for other businesses in the bike industry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to touch on, because I know a lot of our listeners are you know, in this same boat, uh, you've been plant-based for a really long time. Like, How long have you been doing that, first of all? It's funny. It's been five and a half years, but (laughs) whenever you're having fun, it just doesn't feel like it's been that long. Like I moved to Canada around that time too. And it's like, oh my gosh, like I can't believe it's been that long. That's right. Yeah. You and I are, we we run very parallel lives actually. (laughs) We do. We should hang out more. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Okay. With the plant-based nutrition, and then we're going to make plans to hang out. Um, Yes. Have you had any challenges with that as an athlete? I mean, honestly, especially as a, someone stage racing around the world. It's funny. You would think that my answer is yes. And like a lot of people do have challenges. So I don't want to like not include or alienate people that do have challenges. It's okay to have challenges for me. Um, it just, I haven't like, I've had self doubt with it for sure. Because anytime I feel bad on my bike for a prolonged period of time, or if I feel tired or, you know, if anything happens, the first thing I, I still want to do is blame my diet because that's where your mind goes. Cause you're doing something different than everybody else. But I've had repeated blood work and tests and things like that. And the cool thing is there's a company called inside tracker that I worked with last year and they do blood work where they analyze all these different biomarkers of athletes across lots of different sports. And then they recommend dietary changes to help you improve. But you know, mine wasn't perfect, but they told me that mine was the best that they had ever seen across thousands of athletes. So that really gave me a lot of confidence in what I was doing. And I haven't had any problems with anemia. The only thing I've ever been deficient in was recently, and that was vitamin D. And that's not even from my diet. That's just from being inside and in the clouds too much. 
Mm-hmm. But I think the key to success with a plant-based diet is number one, being flexible. And a lot of people would disagree with this saying, no, like you have to be a hundred percent. It's black and white for me. Like, yes, I am a hundred percent, but it took me time to get there. And mm-hmm. it's about being, it's, it's about, it's not about creating this exclusive club or a label. It's just about being healthier. And that's why I eat plant-based. So if you can just add in healthier foods and just make that your goal, instead of trying to be perfect with this diet, do that. And it also involves, um, advanced, it it takes planning. It takes a little bit of research, but basically if you're eating whole foods, meaning no processed foods and eating the whole grain version of things, and you're including legumes and whole grains and and vegetables into your diet as much as possible, you're going to get healthier. Mm -hmm. So that's been, that's been my experience with that. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned inside tracker because I just recorded a podcast with Jonathan from there and I just got it done too. And as someone who used to be vegan now eats meat, my blood work is a mess. So (laughs) proving that you you can be plant-based and be much healthier than someone who uh, isn't. Uh, Super interesting. Yeah. My iron is tanked, which is really funny to me because when I was plant-based, it wasn't. It was actually fine. And now I eat red meat and it's really low. So yeah, weird, (laughs) weird stuff. Yeah. It's weird because heme iron is the iron available in meat. And yes, it is more bioavailable for absorption. But a lot of plants have non-heme iron, and as long as you're having anything with vitamin C next to it, which if you're eating a whole foods diet, like chances are you're having some sort of like vegetable that has vitamin C next to a bean or spinach or whatever, you actually will absorb more iron. Um, so that's kind of a misconception that people often think is, oh, like I, I'm not going to be able to get enough iron if I'm not eating meat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, admittedly, when I was back in my like super vegan days, I was like a punk rock vegan. So I was very much into the um, let's go to the vegan fast food place like three times a week, four times yeah. a week, etc. So I'm actually much more whole foods based now, which is hilarious to me. Um, but yeah, it's it's all super interesting. I like I could not believe how that like all the blood work and testing and stuff, like what it showed me about myself. It was really cool. Yeah, it's super interesting to like, you You don't know what's going on until you open up the hood and say, okay, like, let's check this. And exactly. I still get blood work done at, at least once a year because it's good to know what's happening in your body and also to know what your baselines are. Definitely. Yeah. That way, when something does start feeling off, you have something to compare it to, which is nice. Um, so what's, what's coming up for you race wise or work wise? What's exciting in the next year or so? Yeah, I'm going to continue just racing stage races. Um, I'm for the first time ever. Well, for the first time, basically, since I started endurance racing, I'm actually taking a real off season. So every year I've been racing like nine months out of the year and then training, getting immediately back into training and then starting racing again in like January. So I'll stop in October, November, start again in January. And I've I've admittedly been burning myself out because in in addition to the racing, as we've talked about all the business projects. Mm -hmm. So I think that like this year I've noticed I didn't get sick for four years and I've been sick like at least five times this year and it's from trying to do too much. So this is my period, excuse me, this is my period of recovery. It's my period of taking downtime. And then also like it takes, I I feel insecure about it. I feel insecure Mm -hmm. because I'm used to racing all the time to be like, look, I'm a racer. Look, I'm a racer. Look, I'm an athlete. And, um, yeah, so I'm excited to work on that headspace of being still identifying as a racer, as an athlete, but not racing every single chance I get. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I, I think that there's a race in Croatia that I'm really interested in doing. And the course itself isn't the most amazing course, but it'd be pretty cool to go to Croatia. Um, there's, yeah. I just, I just love new races. So I'm always on the lookout for new stage races or stage races in countries that I haven't been to so that I can go try them. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I'm looking at for this year. And also maybe doing some more domestic endurance races in the U S cause I haven't really been doing a lot of that lately and I miss all the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny. I tend to not really miss the racing so much like especially a cyclocross I don't really miss racing cross but I really (laughs) miss the people at the races it's it's funny how they become your family after you know a certain amount of years yeah for sure I mean it's our tribe and it's our community and 
like it's so important to to have that that feeling of belonging somewhere. Mm-hmm. Although I was just talking to one of my friends at a cross race the other weekend, he was like, "You you know, we could hang out, like not at a race. <laughs> like you guys could come out and visit us, and like we could hang out like normal people would." And I was like, "I don't understand what you're saying right now." <laughs> That is so funny. <laughs> like it's so weird. We just like expect that like the only way we can see some people is if we are racing. But no, we could actually just go make time for that. Novel, That's so funny. novel concept. <laughs> awesome. All right, where can people follow you? Find you? Buy socks? Listen to your podcast? Everything. Um, they can go to sonyalooney.com and everything's on there. Um, for socks, they can go to moxieandgrit.com, M-O-X-Y-A-N-D-G-R-I-T.com. And my podcast is The Sonia Looney Show. Go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts or to my website. You can go to my Instagram. Um, everything's I'm really easy to find online. And I want to say thank you, Molly, for having me on your show Thank you for all the awesome content and positivity and everything that you're doing because it really does make a difference and I feel so thankful to be included in that. Oh, of course. I'm so glad you could come on. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Uh, you can check out my stuff over at theoutdooredit.com or by following me on Instagram and Twitter at Molly J. Herford. And you can check out Peter's coaching, training plans, blogs, all that fun stuff over at smartathlete.ca or by following him on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Glassford. And if you want to support this show and other awesome podcasts, please check out wideanglepodium.com for show info, other podcasts, bonus content and to become a donating member so you can get all of that rad behind the scenes content and help keep shows like this on the air. And lastly, if you're enjoying this podcast and all the information that we're bringing to you every single week, uh, do us a solid and pop into iTunes to leave us a rating and review. It takes you about two seconds. You can do it on your computer. You can do it on your phone and it really helps us out. Thanks so much. And we will see you next week.